0: Good morning again. When the crowds of people left the Lord Jesus, and He turned and asked His apostles if they were going to do the same, Peter said to Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's to those words of eternal life that we now turn. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Chapter 2. We've already mentioned uh, the terrible events of this last week at our sister church in Nashville, Covenant Presbyterian Church and the Covenant School. When tragedy and evil strike, we weep. But when tragedy and evil happen so close to home, the combination of sorrow and mourning And anger and fear can be overwhelming. What hope do we have in the face of such reckless hate and evil? The answer is always found in Jesus. But the answer to our sorrow and mourning and anger and fear is specifically found in the events that we are celebrating this week. This week is often called Holy Week in the Christian calendar. This week we remember the last week of Jesus' life, beginning with His jubilant and triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which quickly turned to the horror and sorrow of His death on a cross. But praise God that the end of Holy Week is not Good Friday. The end of this evil and sorrow and death is not the cross and the grave. No, the end of all these things is the empty tomb of Easter. We do not proclaim a general hope in the midst of sadness. Our hope isn't just that there is some silver lining in the clouds or a glass half full optimism in the midst of tragedy. No, our hope is found in a person. It is found in a person who died a cruel and ugly death, but who rose from the dead and so conquered death and sin and evil. Jesus Christ is our hope. Jesus Christ, who is the living and reigning King, who holds the keys to death and Hades, who is Himself the resurrection and the life. In the face of death and sorrow and fear, we look to our living King, Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to begin Holy Week by looking at one of the most well-known passages about Jesus in the Bible, in Philippians 2, 5 11. The passage is poetic in the way that it depicts Jesus, which is why historians and commentators say that it may have been one of the early creeds of the church, or perhaps a hymn praising Christ. But the beauty isn't just in the poetry, it's in the subject of the poetry. This passage describes the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. It declares the glory of a God who was high but made himself low. And because he made himself low, he has now been exalted above every name. This is the message of Holy Week, the message of Jesus and the message of the Christian life. Humiliation always precedes exaltation. Suffering always comes before glory. A cross always comes before a crown. And so we look now to the humility and glory of Jesus, the hope for ruined and suffering sinners. But before we do, let's ask Almighty God for His help, that He would open our eyes to see Jesus. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read Your holy word, I ask that You would give us Your spirit of wisdom and revelation, That we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may see Jesus and come to him. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to work through this passage this morning by asking four questions that Paul answers in this text. First, who is Jesus? Second, how did he humble himself? Third, why did he humble himself? And then finally, what was on the other side of Jesus' humility? The hymn or the creed itself begins in verse six, and the place it begins is with the identity of Christ prior to his incarnation. Who is Jesus? Verse six says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we need to see that those two descriptive words or phrases, in the form of God and equality with God, are saying the same thing. That word form can bring to mind someone who is mimicking someone else, pretending to be something they aren't. Like a shape-shifter who takes on different forms or appearances. But Paul immediately dispels that idea by what he says next. That Jesus is equal with God. Form here isn't a pretend likeness to God. It is true likeness to God. Jesus is equal with God. This doesn't mean that there are two gods or that Jesus is some sort of sub-God who is very much like the one true God. No, this is the amazing teaching of Scripture that God is is triune. There is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's Trinitarian nature is mysterious, but it is no longer hidden. This is the consistent confession of the whole New Testament, and it comes out whenever the Bible tells us who Jesus is. John 1.1 says, "...in the beginning was the Word." And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word, the Logos, is the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He is distinct from the Father. Notice John said that he was with God, and yet he is God. The Word was God. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. of the invisible God. God has existed eternally. And throughout the Bible, we hear that he cannot be seen. You remember Moses in Exodus 32 asking God if he can see his glory. And God says that if he did, he would die for beholding his splendor. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. Hebrews 1.1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. In John 14, when Philip, who has been with Jesus for three years, begs Jesus to show them the Father, Jesus responds and says, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is exactly what we've been seeing throughout the Gospel of Matthew. The identity of Jesus. It begins with the angel coming to Joseph and saying that the child in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. And it culminates in Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The teaching of the Bible from the very moment we meet Jesus to the very end is that He is the eternal Son of God. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. There is nothing outside His control and ability. Nothing outside of His knowledge. Nowhere that He cannot go. He has life in Himself and has no need that anyone could give to Him. He created the whole universe from the farthest galaxies to the smallest molecule. This is what Paul means when he says that Jesus was in the very form of God And equal with God, our minds are not big enough to grasp the glory and power and majesty of who Jesus is. And that is exactly what makes the next line in Philippians 2 so stunning. Because Paul doesn't just say that he was in the form of God and that he was equal with God, he juxtaposes those things with what Jesus did. Read with me again, starting in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." The Son of God was high and lifted up. He is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. But the truth of the gospel, the very foundation of Christianity, the one thing we have to offer the world is that Jesus didn't consider that glory something to be grasped. He didn't cling to his glory, he didn't hold on to it. Instead, he let it go. In this passage, Paul describes the downward march of Jesus. He began with the infinite glory and majesty of being God himself. But Jesus didn't cling to his high position. Instead, he lowered himself. When the story of humanity is that we have constantly been trying to lift ourselves up, Jesus came down. This is the story of the gospel. Paul describes this downward march in two stages. In verse 7, he says he emptied himself. And then in verse 8, he says he humbled himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is describing the incarnation. Paul says that Jesus Emptied himself, but then he explains what he means. It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his divinity or somehow laid aside his divine attributes. No, the emptying that Paul is talking about is an emptying of his position, his status, an emptying of his rights. He begins in the form of God and then takes on the form of a servant. He is God, but becomes a human. Jesus went from high and lifted up, receiving the unceasing praise of thousands of angels in happy fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, to a feeding trough in Bethlehem. He went from the infinite splendor and praise to being misunderstood, mocked, and hated. He went from the glories of heaven to the weakness of a human body. The emptying of Jesus didn't diminish his divinity. That's what's so amazing. Jesus never becomes less God when he became a man. In his divine nature, he was still infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, possessing life in himself and holding the universe up by his powerful word. But that was joined to a real human nature, a finite human body that developed and grew a finite human mind that had to learn human emotions and weaknesses, Jesus became a real human. The 4th century church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, describes it memorably. He says, what he was, he continued to be, God Almighty. What he was not, he took to himself, human frailty. The incarnation was not an act of subtraction where the Son of God took away his divinity. Instead, it was an act of addition where he took on our humanity. The infinite Son of God became a frail and weak human. The one who spoke creation into being had to learn how to talk. The God who provides food for every living thing Felt hunger pains. The Son of God whom angels worship day and night became the servant of stupid and sinful people like you and me. C.S. Lewis says this is like you or me becoming a slug. But that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. God is further above humanity than we are above a single-celled amoeba. There's a reason why the Greek philosophers revolted at the idea of the incarnation. There's a reason why a devout Muslim will get offended if you say that God became a man. Because it is almost unthinkable that the perfect and infinite God would take on the weak and frail nature of a human. But this is what Jesus Christ did. He emptied himself. Verse 8 tells us that Jesus didn't just become human. He didn't even just become a servant. No, the downward march from the splendor of heaven didn't end in the manger, it ended on a cross. Verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't become man to show solidarity with mankind. He wasn't born in the likeness of men so he could know how we feel. He became a human so that he could die. This is what you realize when you read through the Gospels. Everyone keeps getting excited about who Jesus is. And then in the midst of that excitement, he tells them that he must suffer and die. He won't let the disciples forget his purpose in coming into the world. He says the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Throughout Matthew we've seen that the whole point of Jesus coming into the world was told by the angel to Joseph in Matthew 121. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Your sins don't just require a teacher to fix Your ignorance. They don't just require a counselor to give you advice and encouragement. You don't just need a motivational speaker to make you work a little harder. The just penalty for your sin is death. And so the only hope you have is a substitute to die in your place. Jesus' downward march from the throne of heaven was always going to end in death on a cross. Death is not a small side issue in the Christian faith. It is the issue. From the very first page of the Bible, right on the heels of God's pure and very good creation, sin enters the world and what does it bring with it? Death. All those genealogies end in the exact same way. So and so lived X number of years. He fathered this many children and then... He died. Death is the unavoidable fact of every human person who ever lived. We can send people to the moon and split the atom and video chat with people in Hong Kong. But humanity has made zero progress to stop sin and death. And we never will. We pretend that we are in control and we are planning out our lives. And then you feel a lump. Then your eyes and your ears and your memory don't work like they used to. Then tragedy strikes. The slow or the fast decay of the body reminds us that we can do nothing to overcome death. The whole Christian message is that we have been saved from something we could never save ourselves from. And the shocking twist in the story is that Jesus didn't save us from death by coming in with a sword and a chariot. He didn't conquer sin and evil with brute strength. Jesus saved us from death by dying. He saved us from sin by taking its penalty on himself. Brothers and sisters, we don't have a God who is distant and uninterested in our suffering. We don't have a God who saw our plight and sent us a manual for how to get ourselves out. We have a God who saw our self-inflicted suffering from sin and death and got down in it with us. Jesus humbled himself. He made himself weak and needy and subject to pain, and then he suffered and died. Edward Shalito was a poet writing in the wake of World War I. One of the things he acknowledged was that the suffering and pain of the war actually drew people to Jesus as the true God. He says to conclude a famous poem, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. It is when we are most aware of our wounds and weakness and suffering that the suffering of Jesus speaks loudest. The downward march of Jesus ended in suffering, mockery, and scorn. It ended by him being nailed to a cross and dying the death of a criminal. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But why? Why did He humble Himself? Why did He empty Himself of His status and position? Why did He give up the glories of heaven to go to a cross? Because He loves us. We are so prone to think of God as either all-powerful but not very interested in us, or all loving, but maybe a little weak and fragile. But the amazing truth that we see in this passage is that those two things go hand in hand in Jesus. He is infinitely powerful and infinitely loving. His power and compassion are not at odds with one another. He had the praises and worship of heaven but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He saw us in our weakness and plight and got down into the mud with us. We said this earlier, we weren't just in trouble. We weren't just a little ignorant and needing some teaching. We weren't just a little weak and needing a boost. We were slaves to sin and oppressed by death. And instead of leaving us, Jesus came down with us. Condemnation stood over you because of your sin, and he took your sin upon himself. Death is the penalty that awaited every one of us, and he entered the valley of the shadow of death with us. Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. It was because He loves you that He was born in the likeness of men. It was His love and compassion for you that caused Him to endure the scorn and mockery of those around Him. It was His loving kindness toward you that caused Him to go to the cross. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How much? As far as the heavens are above the earth. That's how far He came down to save you. As far as the throne is above the cross. That's how much the Lord Jesus loves you. What was on the other side of Jesus' humiliation? Everything Paul says in verses 5 through 8 is true and good. Jesus was high and lifted up. He humbled himself and took on the weakness of humanity and went to death. It is true that our God is a God who loves us and His love drove Him to the incarnation and to death. But that is not the end of the story. Death and sin and evil and sorrow are not the end of the story. When we see tragedy and heartbreak, it is not enough to say that Jesus gets down in the mud with us. Because the end of the story is that he pulls us up out of the mud. Jesus doesn't just die so that he can join us in death. His suffering is not the final word. His humiliation ended in death. But that is the very place where his exaltation begins. Only from death can resurrection come. Only the grave can give way to eternal life. And so on the other side of Jesus' death, we read, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is exalted right back to the status of His glory and authority and majesty. But the angels and saints surrounding His throne are singing a new song because of what Jesus accomplished in His humiliation. Revelation 5 tells us that the angels and saints are gathered around the throne and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. This is where Jesus was exalted to. His downward march to the cross gave way to resurrection and victory and exaltation. But notice where we are in Jesus' exalted state. We are not just the worshipers. We are also the recipients. The loving sacrifice of the Lamb has ransomed a people for Himself a kingdom and priests to our God. Jesus includes us in his exaltation. In Ephesians 2, Paul shows us that this is the whole point of the gospel. He begins with that wonderful phrase, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The end of the story for those who trust in Jesus is not death, but life, not humiliation. But exaltation, not sorrow, but joy. Brothers and sisters, we know the end of the story. Jesus has told it to us. And so, in the midst of tears and sorrow and suffering and even death, we hold fast with confidence to the end of the story. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John sees the return of Christ, the end of the story, and he describes it to us. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true." This is what we are about to spend all week reflecting on. We are going to reflect on the suffering of Jesus and our sin that made the cross necessary. We're going to meditate on the love of God that sent His Son into the world and drove Jesus to the cross. We are going to remember His substitutionary sacrifice that paid for our sins and bore our griefs. But we are not going to stop there. The end of the week, just like the end of the story of the world, is not death, but resurrection. For the Christian, humiliation is always with the sure and certain knowledge of exaltation. Death will always lead to resurrection. Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We walk with Jesus on the path of humiliation because we know that it is the only true path to exaltation. The path to death is the only true path to life. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let us follow our Lord Jesus on that path. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you when you show us our weakness. We thank you when you remind us that we are helpless without you. Lord, we pray that we would see in Jesus our only comfort in life and in death. We pray that we would Not just see that in Jesus, but that we would come to him and cling to him all of our days. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.